Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 152. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Lucy Isselin. Hey, thanks for uh, having me today. It's great to have you, and we're going to be discussing an article published in the New York Times on February 2nd, 2016, entitled Dreams of the Dying, which you actually gave to me a while ago and thought that I might enjoy, which I very much did, and I'd love to know where you want to begin this conversation. I've always thought a lot about dreams. As a kid, I had a lot of nightmares, and that kind of started that. I mean, I don't know what kid doesn't have a lot of nightmares. So that kind of started my interest in dreams. But recently, I read a graphic novel by Alison Bechtel, or Bechtel, I don't know how to say her last name, who was the author of Fun Home. And she wrote another novel about her mother called Are You My Mother? And in it, she discusses her relationship about her mother, but also her relationship to therapy. And to begin every chapter in this novel, she discusses and illustrates a dream that she's had and then depicts herself and the discussions that she has in therapy about those dreams. I read this book after I read the article, but I think both talk about dreams as therapy in different ways. But I think that's a really interesting idea that I've kind of started to think about myself and my own dreams. So I guess that's a good place to start. I think dreams as therapy is a really interesting starting point because towards the end of the article, the author Jan Hoffman notes that some feel these dying dreams are crucial as spiritual experiences for the individual and should not be tampered with. But others, like Dr. Timothy Quill, who is an expert on palliative care medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center, feel otherwise and think it's a bit romantic to say that patients should be allowed to have these dreams. And while I see both sides of the argument, I actually think people should be allowed to experience these dreams or potentially nightmares. And while it may not be comfortable, I do think at the end of one's life, whether it is a false sense of reconciliation or otherwise, we all have, I would presume, a lot of baggage, a lot of ideas to sort through. And I do think dreams, however subconscious or maybe potentially conscious, are a means of sorting through those emotions, and various patients note in these dreams that they are guided by, surrounded by, or greeted by loved ones, people they've lost, individuals from their past, and so I think there is something poetic and conclusory to these dying dreams, but I'll admit that it may not always be comfortable, as various doctors and nurses have observed in their patients Do you think that when a patient is in visible distress from these dreams that they should be interrupted? There's this idea that when you see a person sleepwalking, that you're supposed to not touch them and not wake them up. And I don't know how much credence actually goes to that kind of wives' tale of being told not to wake up a sleepwalking person. But I do think dreams are a very personal experience and a rare moment in which the self is allowed to access a different part of your own brain. And to interrupt that would be a disruption of a potential breakthrough moment. And I think it almost implies that the observer's impression of the dreamer is superior to the dreamer's experience in that moment. Relating to that, especially in this article, the whole study that's being discussed and performed here relates to dreams before death and dreams approaching death. And our society has a very hard time discussing death and discussing age. And here, many of the nurses are next to these patients to facilitate a comfortable experience in death, but that does not mean that they are in any way supposed to interfere with the processes of accepting one's own life coming to an end. 
these dreams are perhaps crucial to accepting this process and being conscious of the finality of one's own bodily self. In a way, through this article, I kind of came to grapple with this idea of maybe dreams are an opportunity for our own mind to run a trial run, almost of an event that we consciously or subconsciously know is coming to pass soon. Many people talk about how they feel that dreams have the ability to predict the future, which I am extremely interested in because I feel I've experienced similar things. But then you have to think about how that kind of contradicts each other. Is it that dreams predict the future or because the information already is within the self, you're able to run through it and run through it and then actualize the trials that you've run? That is really interesting, especially the word actualize, because a number of patients at Hospice Buffalo, the focus of this article, which is a center for terminally ill patients, noted that their dreams often involved those who they hadn't had a chance to reconcile certain issues with or had passed on early in their lives. There's even one patient who was sexually abused as a child, and it wasn't until the family reluctantly admitted this information that doctors knew to administer anti-anxiety medication as opposed to antipsychotics. And so I think at times dreams can be a means of actualizing what we have left to live, but also it seems as though, like you said, they are a trial run for that which we will never experience, but still dwells within us, whether that be in the form of an unrealized ambition or a social or emotional issue that had never been resolved. And I think there is something especially poetic about these dreams of the dying because you are truly alone. And I would say almost in an existential sense where I believe your success is largely determined by what actions you choose to take, in the world of dreams, you have to respond to what is or is not there. And the most you can really draw from other people is what you know of them, what impressions you have. You, Lucy, couldn't enter into my dreams, but I might be able to envision how you would behave or act in my dreams based on what I know of you as a person. And so I do think that sense of solitude, not necessarily loneliness, but independence, is very interesting. Did you have a similar impression of how these dying individuals might be sorting through their own battles on a level of independence? Often I think that with dreams, we confront issues that we may or may not have been hiding from ourselves in our own minds. It's this time when you're asleep that your mind opens up these blockaded areas because there are no other anxieties or needs that must be dealt with during the day. And so you're allowed to wrestle with and grapple with these things that perhaps are from your past and you have yet to deal with or simply a looming fear, like a fear of death that you have yet to confront. And with this, I kept returning to that idea of therapy. And usually when we think of therapy in the clinical sense, it does involve another person in kind of a conversation or a more experienced mind. But like you said, here you're alone. To think of yourself as alone, but able to access and confront these ideas and fears and anxieties and past events and what could be coming in the future really makes me question what is accessible within ourself. So if this is therapy, there are two sides within yourself that a wall comes down between. Almost the diagnosis and the treatment come from within the self during this time of sleep and rest. And I'm really glad that you mention walls, because as I was reading this article about those who are dying and the honesty that they either are or are inclined to experience, 
I was thinking about all the walls that we put up in life. Some of the most honest people I know are either very, very young, near infancy, or very, very old and potentially near death. And to me, part of the value in these dreams is the raw honesty that they produce. I think they are fundamentally truthful in a sense, because as both the mind and the body approach death, I think individuals are on some fundamental, maybe even precognitive level, aware of their mortality, which in and of itself is a truth. And I think lies that we tell ourselves or tell others are a product of how we are socialized, how our society works. There are certain things that would be uncomfortable to talk about, but I think that we all realize to an extent that as you approach death, There's no reason to keep telling those lies because you won't have to uphold that social structure anymore. And so I think, in a very sad way, it's only really for the dying that this type of honesty can emerge. And I think we could learn a lot from them and try to embrace more of that honesty earlier in life, where I think, as we've read in this article, it can be very cathartic to grapple with sometimes uncomfortable, but always very real and serious issues of what one has lived and experienced. In this article, you see another interesting wall fall down that I think is very much connected to the ability of the self to drop the social constructs we've been taught all our lives. I see this potential to learn about the connection between the mental self and the physical self and the connection between those two and the blurring of those two within these dream worlds of the near dead. There are some people who believe that the soul, the mind, and the body are one and everywhere. There's not a separate brain that contains the soul, and then that brain communicates to the body, and the body communicates back to the brain. Those are two different camps, two different ways of thinking. But here in this dream world, especially as these terminally ill are coming closer and closer to the day where they will confront that finality, I'm intrigued as to the ability of these dreams to lend insight to the nature of the physical and mental connection between our mind and body and our mind and soul. Are these dreams an arena in which the body's physical state is communicating to the mind and the soul that the end is nigh not to make light of this situation? Or are the two the same and they are both aware of this finality? Is this a communication of the physical state of one's body attempting to connect to the mental state and prepare? I think another dropping of this wall that would intermingle fear with the physical state is that our society is very uncomfortable with death and with age. And I'm intrigued that this study focuses on a way to work through this fear of death and age through dreams, which our society is potentially at times uncomfortable with. Early in the article, the author mentions that our legal system recognizes a person's last words as evidence in court. And here, I was very intrigued to the connection between that hard legal evidence as fact and the idea of dreams and the perhaps delirious last words of the dying. Often, I think our society has a tendency to brush dreams off and consider them the work or the arena of 
bookshelves filled with dream dictionaries and tarot cards. And here we see that scientific studies, medical research, and a whole legal system support these dreams. And so that's a kind of contradictory idea in our society that on one hand, we can brush it off and tell our children, no, sweetie, it was just a nightmare. And on the other hand, we are using the cathartic, perhaps telling powers of the dream world to further our understanding of the last stages of one's life. And I'm glad you mentioned the way our society, I do think, scoffs at dreams or at least their personal or practical value because I do think that's an issue our society currently has. And to me is evident in another quotation from Dr. Quill who says, the huge challenge of this work is to help patients feel more normal and less alone during this unusual experience of dying. And to me that quotation gets at how difficult dying is but also at how stigmatized dreaming is, as you had alluded to. And I think patients going through this very unusual experience must feel alone and perhaps powerless in their understanding of their own mortality, but might also feel inarticulate or incapable of expressing the powerful and profound emotions found within their dreams. And so they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And although we may not be able to change death, I do think that an underlying argument of this article is that we could be a bit more respectful of one's experience in dreaming, because at the end of the day, it may not be your reality in hearing about someone else's dream, but for a few hours or a few minutes of their sleeping life, they very much experienced it. And I don't think it's our place as the non-dreamers to say, well, that's not real because I didn't feel those sensations and you did. I feel that we could all be more empathetic and try to learn from one another's dreams and also probably detect similarities that occur between all of our dreams that might bring us together if we were willing to discuss dreams more. Perhaps if we begin to think of dreams as a dialogue within the self, society would be more willing to accept the critical and analytical value of looking at our dreams as subjects. I believe that here in the dreams of the near dead and the dying, the study shows us that dreams provide an opportunity for the subconscious to communicate with the conscious. And then upon awakening, there's another step that the patient must take to analyze the dream itself and continue that dialogue. And perhaps that's where the involvement of others can become more supportive and credible. In this analytical stage, however, the next challenge I think is where do the patients and those surrounding them draw meeting? This article is riddled with examples that are profoundly striking. At least when I was reading it many times, all I could say was, holy cow, did that actually happen? Just fabulous stories of cathartic dreams or impressive symbolism and stuff along those lines. But then we encounter this one paragraph, which I really appreciated, that begins, quote, or they recount typical dream detritus, a dwarf lifting the refrigerator. Neighbors bringing a chicken and a monkey to a patient's apartment. What are we supposed to do here with the dream detritus? How, in that critical and analytical process, does the patient know what to invest meaning in and what to be left behind as detritus? The world of dreams is so confusing and so unknown that perhaps a monkey and a chicken showing up at your apartment does have meaning, and plenty of people have been known to invest meaning in those symbols. I was wondering if you had any thoughts to this note, especially because the subject is so grave and laden with symbols itself, the subject of death. 
I do think that presents a challenge, admittedly, because I would like to see meaning in almost every dream. I do think they come from a very raw place, as we've said, especially when a patient or an individual is approaching death. I would say as a baseline that it might be best to rely on more explicit and familiar symbols or ideas. For example, seeing a family member or a loved one at your bedside forgiving you for something you've done, or seeing individuals from your life guide you through new or unfamiliar spaces, I think, has a clearer symbolic meaning than might a monkey or a chicken, which is not to say that the latter cannot, but I agree with you and probably a lot of skeptics that it's much harder to find the clear meaning there. And what adds to this confusion in how we interpret things is the introduction of delirium, which can be brought about by fever and actually blur the waking and dreaming worlds entirely. So a patient might not wake up from a dream to describe a very vivid scenario, but rather in the waking world might call out to someone that the rest of us do not see. And so they're deemed as having hallucinations or, as some at Hospice Buffalo prefer to call them, visions. And moments like these can very much upset or distress family members who say, my mother is seeing dead people do something about it, but a number of the nurses and doctors responded that it's actually important to recontextualize what the patient is experiencing and not to jump to concerned or fearful conclusions that the patient is in danger or experiencing something negative because a lot of this is a process and may not be comfortable at points for either the patient or their loved ones, but I believe, at least after reading this article, that More often than not, the sum of these dreamed or potentially delirious experiences bring about a general understanding and sense of peace in the patient, although maybe that's optimistic of me. And related to that, the director of the research team, Pei C. Grant, notes that these dreams of dying patients are distinct from near-death experiences because he says, quote, these are people on a journey towards death, not people who just missed it. And I think that's crucial because in a near-death experience, chronologically, you don't have as much time to process things, whereas approaching death, you might have weeks or months in which your body and mind are somewhat aware of their ultimate fate. And related to that fate, I find it interesting to note that a number of patients who reached peace in the dream world in certain scenarios with loved ones or other issues that they had been grappling with passed away very shortly afterwards, maybe two or three days after that final dream. And I do think there is a connection there, although I will admit I'm not an expert. And for those listening, please remember that we will include a link to this article on the website that we would encourage you to check out. As you talk about delirium, I keep circling back to this idea of the wall that may exist or multiple walls that may exist within ourselves and our minds. Delirium presents another situation beyond dreams if you decide to distinguish delirious visions from dreams where the wall between conscious and subconscious blurs and becomes permeable. And we have to think, why does this wall exist? There's so much that's unknown about our conscious self and the evolution of this conscious self over time. But I have to think that there's a potential reason that this wall exists but there's also potential in being aware of its existence. We see this wall begin to come down as people journey towards their death. 
And that makes me think that perhaps when you're young, the wall is not yet fully built. And I've been thinking a lot about my own imagination and how I feel I've been distanced from this imagination. Perhaps when you're young, the wall is not fully yet built. And that's how you have this crazy imagination to create worlds and creatures and let yourself go on a waking dream almost. In the end, I think it's just very important to realize that this study and this amazing article was about the dreams of the near dead and the dying. But you and me have the potential to write down our dreams every night and be aware of that world that our bodies and our minds are giving us access to to listen and to critically think about that, to gain a higher awareness of self and, like you were saying earlier, achieve a more honest and imaginative life. I really like that thought. And before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? I would hope that we're all not so quick to brush off dreams, whether they're the dreams of the young, the nightmares of the old, or the confusing anxiety dreams that would sometimes hit me in the middle of the night when we were in college. There's a lot that our bodies have yet to expose us to, and just as you would read the news in the morning to become a more aware and engaged citizen of the world, to listen to what your own mind and body have revealed to you is to become a more engaged citizen of your own body and your own self. So maybe the next time that your friend tells you about a crazy dream they had last night, really listen. And it's not like you have to know the answers, but just really listen. There's a whole world, and that's crazy, and you should just think about it. Write it down or tell a friend. I agree, and when you say next time a friend tells you about a dream, I don't think we do that enough. As we've said, I do think we stigmatize the value of dreams in our culture, and so if a friend doesn't tell you about a dream, maybe gently ask if they have had any interesting or memorable dreams lately, and you might learn a lot about them, and they might also learn about themselves. And for skeptics out there saying, well, dreams are meaningless and wild and crazy and can't really tell us much about our lives, I think if you at least allow yourself to listen to, record, and analyze those dreams before you discard what they might mean, you'll at least have that information to grapple with as you see fit before you say outright that they aren't worth your time. And I would conclude with advice from Dr. Kerr, the chief medical officer at Hospice Buffalo, who advocates for healthcare providers to ask patients open-ended questions about dreams without fear of recrimination from family and colleagues, because that judgment doesn't really help any of us. And he says, quote, Often when we sedate them, referring to the terminally ill patients, we are sterilizing them from their own dying process. They'll say, you robbed me, I was with my wife. And I think similarly for the living, we can do that by saying, well, dreams don't mean anything, at least listen to what other people have to say about their dreams, if in fact they are willing. And Lucy, I'd like to thank you very much for being willing to discuss this with me. I really enjoyed talking to you. I thank you too, Kev. It's been a great conversation, and I think this is just the beginning of engagement in a larger cognitive process. So thanks for having me on. Of course. As always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any thoughts, opinions, input, or feedback of any kind, please reach out to us. You can connect with us on Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsantra at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone you think might also enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.